Full Scope, Human Longevity and Performance Podcast. We want you to become the most exceptional, high-performing version of yourself. And to facilitate this, we are giving away the Longevity Fundamentals Handbook absolutely free. This is a tremendous resource that will tell you the lifestyle behaviors and mindset that will lead to the best outcomes and longevity. To get this, go to our website, wondermedicine.com or fullscope.org, put in your email, and we will send you this amazing resource, the Longevity Fundamentals Handbook. Welcome back, everybody. Sorry for the delay. I took a little break last Sunday for Easter, and then I also have a new little baby boy named Kaylor Brandenburg. He's been bringing so much joy to our life. I'm going to try to keep these podcasts going every two weeks, but sometimes I might falter because you got to spend time with the kid. Okay, great topic this week. We're going to talk about space medicine, outer space, the area beyond Earth. This is something I am extremely passionate about. I love outer space. I love to think about space, the future, all kinds of things related to it. In the future, if I ever get a chance at a second career, I think space medicine is going to be it. Right now, my only connection is really in aerospace medicine as someone who does flight physicals for the FAA. But I hope to keep uh, moving more and more into the space and aerospace medicine field because it's fascinating and I love it. Let's start with the basics. What is space medicine? Space medicine is a multidisciplinary field that aims to keep people safe and healthy in outer space as well as performing and functioning optimally. Space is a very, very hostile environment and the role of a space medicine practitioner is very important for the safety of astronauts and other space voyagers. Some of the things that a space medicine doctor might do is medically certify those planning on traveling to outer space. They may also take care of the families of the people traveling to outer space. They're going to be supporting medically during um, missions and things like that, as well as performing annual evaluations or more frequent evaluations on astronauts who return from space. On top of this, they're going to be supervising training missions and other stuff like that to prepare astronauts for space. There's also a huge amount of research and engineering and software development and other disciplines that are all needed um, kind of as part of uh, space um, hygienics to keep people safe in the outer space world. And really, this is not just something for doctors. This is something for so many people. And in order to get where we need to go on a space medicine, um, from a space medicine standpoint, we are going to need help from many, many different people with many, many different talents. As far as the future of space medicine goes, this is going to be an evolving, changing field. I think as we start to go on longer missions away from Earth, we're going to see 
a revert, you know, kind of a reversion back to having the crew doctor. Because if you think about going to Mars, you're going to have at times up to an eight-minute delay in communications. And people aren't going to be able to immediately return home to Earth, even in celestial bodies as close as the moon. And so having a doctor with an expedition is probably going to be something that comes back, just like we used to have back in the old Explorer days, to Antarctica and other continents and on ships and things like that. So it's going to be an exciting time and really going to be interesting to see how this field evolves and changes. Right now, the aerospace industry and space exploration are absolutely booming. Everyone wants a part of it, and there's really one reason. Money. Space has become extremely profitable. When you think about it, the ability to get things into even just low-Earth orbit orbit helps you control things like communications, internet, um, you know, network things like television and streaming, etc. And so just that telecommunications power of having satellite systems is so important. And that's really what SpaceX's Starlink is all about. Blue Horizon obviously wants a piece of that too, but they're quite a bit behind. But that is going to be a huge moneymaker. And if you're using current internet providers, you're in, like me, you're thinking, oh my god, I cannot wait. On top of that, the mining that we can potentially do in space is limitless. You know, Earth is a beautiful blue rock that we're currently destroying. We can't just mine it out and take resources from it forever. We've got to start doing that from other places. Ideally blighted uh, space bodies that we're not going to be killing life forms on. For instance, even our closest uh, celestial body, the moon, has a lot of helium-3, which can be very, very valuable from an energy production standpoint. That's probably why China and Russia are planning on building a, a space base in the moon, hoping to get it done within the next 10 years, which is ambitious, but also uh, exciting and crazy. On top of that, there are numerous other financial incentives regarding space. Things like tourism, and then all kinds of other unforeseen things that we don't even know about right now. The space race that occurred between the U.S. and Russia resulted in so much technology and just a boom of, of human civilization that we don't even necessarily fully appreciate. Things like GPS all came from that those initial discoveries and so what we're going to learn from space i don't know exactly but it's going to be good and the only way to get that knowledge is to keep exploring and keep pushing the limits the other driver of space exploration is power while there's all these altruistic and good reasons why we should go to space there's also military and defense capabilities Anytime you're developing space technology, it is a dual technology that can be used for good as well as a weapon. And so really the future, really who is in power in the future is going to be the, the country or entity with the best space capabilities. I think that that goes without saying, but people should understand that you're going to be seeing countries like the U.S., pitted against Russia and China, because at the end of the day, the one with more space capabilities is going to be the one who could, you know, basically exercise power over the other if need be. And that's obviously a big deal. 
The final reason why space is exploding right now is because the barrier to entry to space has never been lower. It has never been cheaper to put stuff into outer space. Basically, if we adjust for inflation to the year 2000, and we look at the cost of putting a kilogram of weight with the space shuttle into low Earth orbit in 1981, the cost was $85,000 per kilogram. Fast forward to 2019, SpaceX is Falcon Heavy, and the cost has come down to $951 per kilogram to put something into low Earth, or low Earth orbit. That is crazy. And in the next 10, 20, 30 years, we're going to see that cost continue to drop. And we're going to see the barrier to entry to space be even lower and lower. And it's just such an exciting time from that standpoint. In actual real money in 2021, I believe it costs about $2,500 for SpaceX to put a kilogram of weight into low Earth orbit. That is awesome, and it's only going to get better, people. What's up, Full Scope listeners? If you are enjoying this content, if this content is bringing you value, please share it with your friends, loved ones, and everyone else. Post it online, on social media. Let your friends know. Have them subscribe. Put the word out there. That's all we really ask. And at the very least, give us a review and rate the podcast. Thanks so much. Let's get back to the show. Okay, I want to talk about why it is so important that humans get to Mars. And really, it's just important that humans set up self-sustaining colonies on other planets or celestial bodies or gigantic spaceships. Ships. The deal is, is that when you're on one planet like Earth, all it takes is one catastrophic event to make your species extinct. If a giant asteroid hits our planet, if a huge solar flare erupts and directly hits our planet, if a gigantic volcano erupts, if humans just become so stupid that we destroy our planet entirely and kill all ourselves, any of these things make it dangerous to be alone on Earth. But when you get a colony that is self-sustaining on another planet, your chances of becoming extinct as a species become infinitely smaller. If we've got two planets with humans on them, if we lose one of the planets, we don't disappear forever. That is why the survival of our species long-term depends on us not being totally dependent on Earth. And I will say that as we are, as humans move to other planets, we really need to be thinking about also moving all other species of life on Earth with us. The life on Earth is an absolute treasure. Soon we're going to realize that we are actually the guardians of that life on Earth. Currently, we are putting on a clinic on how to destroy a planet and cause a biodiversity crisis, but eventually we may wake up and we may say, you know what, I want beautiful gardens on Mars. I want animals with me. I want sea creatures with me. And we're going to be wrapping all those up into a giant ark and taking them to different planets and basically terraforming these things to become like Earth. 
I bet that sounds crazy to some people, but put that in the back of your minds because I promise you it's possible. I promise you it can happen. And I think it's where our society should be going. We shouldn't just be thinking about bringing humans to other planets. We should be thinking about bringing all life on Earth to other planets. Before we go too much further, we need to actually define what outer space is. And to do that, the Federation Aeronautique Internationale, or FAI, has defined the limit between Earth and space as 100 kilometers above mean sea level on Earth. This is about 62 miles or 330,000 feet. We call this the Kármán line. And the Kármán line is actually very interesting and has an interesting history. But before we get into that, I want to talk about the U.S. Air Force's and NASA's definition of what outer space is. And that is 50 miles or 80 kilometers above mean sea level. Basically, if you are in the Air Force or NASA and you go above that limit, you get your astronaut wings. So a little bit of discordance in that. And honestly, there's a little bit of uh, arbitrariness to the space boundary anyway. Really, it's needed to uh, do things like regulatory and legal stuff as far as airspace and things like that goes. But it really doesn't have a definition based on anything at the 100-kilometer limit. The actual guy who came up with um, the Kármán line was Theodor von Kármán. He was a Hungarian-American physicist, and he calculated the limit of aeronautical flight. What I mean by this is he calculated the height at which, or at least the average height at which above the Earth, that a, that a plane or jet or object could no longer support itself using lift from air over wings. And that, that Kármán line that he came up with was 83.6 kilometers or 51.9 miles. And so in reality, I think that that more objective definition is probably the best definition of, of true space versus Earth, the, the limit to which aeronautical flight is possible. The actual atmosphere of the Earth goes out much, 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 much further than the Kármán line. And actually, it's not so much that it ends all of a sudden, it's just that the, the gases in the atmosphere become more and more dilute as you move further and further away from the Earth. And the geocorona of Earth, which is the luminous part of the outermost regions of Earth's atmosphere, which basically we can send satellites into space and we can kind of see this, this, this luminous radiation around the Earth because of the, the molecules around it, goes out about 391,000 miles or 630,000 kilometers. This is about twice the distance out from the moon. This means that our atmosphere is actually, or that our moon is actually orbiting inside of the Earth's atmosphere. This is pretty crazy. We call this most outermost layer of our atmosphere the exosphere, and it is just very, very thin air. It's, it's nothing like close to Earth, but in fact there are particles. And what's crazy about that is the furthest humans have ever traveled away from Earth was, uh, you know, a long time ago during the Apollo missions when Apollo 13 swung around the moon. At its furthest point, it was 400 and 171,000 kilometers or 248,544 miles away from Earth. 
But at the end of the day, this flight didn't even get outside of Earth's atmosphere. We have not left the atmosphere of planet Earth. This is pretty crazy stuff, people, and pretty interesting to me at least. Another interesting line that, or at least limit, that people sometimes talk about, which I just want to bring up because it's interesting from a medicine standpoint, is the Armstrong line. Harry Armstrong was an Air Force Major General and considered a pioneer in aviation medicine. I really credit a lot of the U.S.'s success in World War II against a more technologically advanced uh, Nazi civilization to advancements made by pioneers like Harry Armstrong in the aviation medicine field. But basically, this Armstrong line is set at about 60,000 feet, and it actually has an objective physiological factor, and that is that 60,000 feet above Earth's mean sea level, on average, this can vary a little bit depending on if you're above the equator and, and the atmosphere in general, but at that height, the pressure becomes so low that at body temperature, blood and other fluids within the body will begin to boil into a gas. And so above this line, you definitely need, you know, a pressure suit, pressurized cabin, stuff like that, because you will literally start to boil above 60,000 feet. I think that's a really interesting uh, concept that ties really well into pressure and human physiology and stuff like that. So a couple different lines, the Kármán line separating Earth between space, the geocorona, which marks the actual atmosphere that travels out from Earth, which actually may be twice the distance uh, of the distance from the moon to Earth. And then the Armstrong line, which denotes the, the height at which the pressure becomes so low that human blood and fluid begin to boil. Crazy stuff. Space is the best. Alright, I cannot stress enough that human understanding of space and space physiology and our ability to keep humans safe in space is so, so primitive at this time. And that is because space exploration is so new, so few people have actually been to space, and the technologies needed to keep people actually safe in this hospital environment, or, or, or sorry, hostile environment, kind of similar to the hospital in space, uh, very dangerous places, if you will. But the technology needed to actually keep people safe in space do not yet exist. So we've got a lot of work to do from this standpoint. And anyone who says otherwise is kidding themselves. I expect as we begin to travel to places like Mars and things that are far away, we're going to make some problems. We're going to have to crack a few eggs to make this omelet, and it's likely that a lot of people are going to die in the early days of remote space travel by humans. I kind of think about early exploration by Europeans, and, and for instance, England. One of the first colonies they made in North America was Roanoke. That entire first colony disappeared. Nobody knows what happens, but it's gone. I really wouldn't be surprised if something like that happened in space or remote space travel, but at that same time, we have to do it for the reasons stated earlier. We have to keep pushing the limits of space. Our species depends on it. Yes, people will die. Yes, there will be losses, but it's so important. So let's talk about humans in space. The story starts 
obviously long before anyone actually went to space with people that started uh, flying planes and etc. You know, back to 1904, the Wright brothers. But if we fast forward to the first person who actually made it to space as we define it now was Yuri Gargarin, a Russian cosmonaut. He spent 108 minutes in space. This was 1961. This means that we've only been going to outer space for 60 years. Wow. Over that time period, less than 600 total people have made it to outer space. The person who has spent the longest time in outer space is a Russian woman, Gannady Padalka. She spent a total of 878 days in space. So a little over two years, and, and maybe coming towards three years. Um, the longest consecutive person time spent in space by a person was done by another Russian woman, Valery Polyakov, who spent 438 consecutive days in space. Basically, what I'm telling you is that not many people have been to space. The people that have been to space have not spent very much time there, and, and by that I'm talking about months and years. And we have a long way to go before we realize what's going to happen to people that aren't in exceptional shape like the astronauts we're currently sending into outer space now. I want to talk a little bit about the International Space Station because it's really, really cool. It's about the size of a football field. It orbits around our Earth, and it was first occupied by humans in November, on November 2nd, 2000, and since then it has been constantly occupied. So we have had an outpost in outer space that has been constantly occupied by humans for 20-plus years. That's pretty awesome. I'm pretty proud of that, and I think we just need to keep it going. So we are making advances. Sometimes they seem slow, especially after you went to the moon, and then we kind of backed off. But it's pretty cool that we've had people in space consecutively all over that time period. The International Space Station is the most expensive structure ever built. When you look at the total cost as of 2011, which is probably double now, it was $100 billion at that time. So again, space is expensive, but it's worth it. And for those willing to invest, it's probably going to pay absolutely tremendous dividends. All right, that was a lot about background and space stuff and kind of some of my opinions on where space should go and, and whatnot. I didn't talk so much about the health effects, but I want to break this up into a two-part episode. So in the next episode, I'm going to actually start to dive in to some of the hazards faced by people traveling into space. We're going to talk about things like ionizing radiation. We're going to talk about the effects of microgravity on people's physiology and health. We're going to talk about how dangerous and hostile the space environment in general is. We're going to talk about entry and re-entry into space and some of the risk factors that go along with that. We're going to talk about some of the occupational and toxicological risks that go along with living and working on a spacecraft. We're going to talk about just the remoteness of space and how it has low resources and getting back to uh, you know a safe, like... Uh, um, high-resource environment is particularly difficult, especially as we move further and further away from low Earth orbit. And then we're going to talk about the human factor, the psychology that, that's going to have to go into sending a few people in a small space capsule to some place like Mars over the course of six or nine months is going to represent a tremendous challenge. I mean, the group dynamics, 
the psychology of that, the idea that they're going to work together and be productive over the course of a couple of years is going to be really, really difficult. And so the psychological factor of space travel, not just from the human interaction perspective, but also just like the mental health, depression, anxiety type of stuff is going to be really, really difficult. Uh, humans love Earth. It's a great environment. We're going to talk about that extensively in part two. But when we start going into space and start getting away from Earth, that is going to start to feel tremendously isolating, especially to the initial pioneers that head out before we've really got the technology fully dialed in. If you are a medical provider or a nurse or anyone else in the medical field and you are interested in outer space, there are more and more jobs opening up. There's more and more research opportunities. More academic centers are starting in countries are starting to validate this as a real medical specialty. So if you like space medicine, there is a future for you. What I will say as the last part of this episode is that if you want to be involved in space medicine, you can be in a number of different specialties because it's so multidisciplinary that just a lot of different input from different people can help. Things like neurology, um, ENT, cardiology, all of those specialties are going to be very useful and helpful from a space medicine standpoint. On the other side of that coin, if you actually want to be a true space medicine provider, someone that's actually the one caring for, for the families and the astronauts, someone that's potentially going on the missions as a space doctor, you're probably going to want to do a more generalist type of training. And I think the most applicable training for space medicine is what I did, rural family medicine. I'm trained to be the doctor that goes to a smaller town and does everything. That is going to lend itself particularly well to a you know medical officer that goes on a trip with, with other space travelers to Mars. Other specialties that are that are broad and, and wide and people that can take care of, you know, all different ages and all different things are going to be very useful as well. So things like emergency medicine, um, things like uh, internal medicine, pediatrics, uh, combined residencies. But if you're training in one of those broad specialties like family medicine, emergency medicine, internal medicine, med peds, I would strongly encourage you to get as much critical care, emergency medicine, and anesthesia experience as possible. Because if you're the crew doctor going to a place like Mars, you're going to want those critical care and emergency skills under your belt. And so let's say you do family medicine or rural family medicine, you're going to want to get that extra time in the ICU and with anesthesia to take that part of your game up to the next level. Because at the end of the day, if you're in space, it's probably you. You need to put the IV in, it's probably you. You need to sedate somebody, it's going to be you. Procedures, you. Everything is going to be you. So getting that broad training and being able to do as much stuff as possible is what you need. Thank you so much for listening to the Full Scope Podcast and investing in your health. I'm Dr. Bill Randenberg. If you're enjoying the content, please rate, review, and share this content with all of your friends online and all your social media platforms. Please understand that this podcast is not intended to treat, diagnose, or cure your specific medical condition. This podcast does not create any type of doctor-patient relationship between myself, Dr. Brandenburg, and you, the listener. If you do need help with your life, with your health, with anything regarding your longevity or performance, please check out wondermedicine.com. Our longevity and performance program is the best in the world and is ready to help you right now 
today, become the best possible individual you can be. Thanks. Bye-bye. 